All right, you can be taking your Bibles and opening, opening up with me to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts, we will be in chapter 4 this morning. We are back in the book of Acts. We took a, a brief break, went through a psalm last Sunday, but we're back in the book of Acts. I've, I've actually had back-to-back sermons, or this will be my uh, the second of back-to-back sermon here in Acts, which is pretty uncommon to get back-to-back sermons in a, in a book like this, but um, I'm happy to, to have this passage uh, this is a this is a really really good passage. Um, it is very encouraging. I pray that everybody finds it encouraging, but it's very heavy too. Um, it's heavy as we weigh the thought of how this applies to us, and and if we think of ourselves and the position that Peter and John were put in, and, and how that could play out in our lives today. And so I pray that as we work through this passage today, that we're impacted. Uh, by the power in this passage, we're impacted both by encouragement and also to, to think uh, and, and prepare ourselves um, to be ambassadors for Christ as we, we move through this passage, as we move through this, this life that He has given us. Let's begin by reading. Beginning of verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which, had become the, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to, no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak to te- or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. Now, to kind of get us back to where we're at in this passage... Acts, we've worked through obviously the first three chapters of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, to begin with, is really teaching us about the testimony, the resurrection 
of Christ, right? That is the purpose, really, of the book of Acts, is the testimony through the apostles of the resurrection of Christ. We've seen the, the, really the growth, the explosion, uh, so to speak, of the church, how the church went public a couple of chapters ago, and, and Peter addressed the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and, and he began that, that message of the resurrection, resurrected Christ. We've seen the, the church continue to grow and continue to, to build as, as Christ has used that Word to, to grow His, His body. We've seen last chapter, if you recall, Peter and John, they were walking to the temple and they pass a lame man. And this lame man cries out and, and Peter and John, they reach down and they, or they heal him. They heal him through the power of Jesus. And then and they soon begin to preach the resurrected Jesus to this crowd. Now, this is the second time that Peter has preached the Lord to this large crowd in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus concerning His resurrection. The first time, as I mentioned already, was there at Pentecost. And that sermon, it was followed, or it followed the sign of tongues, right? There was a great sign of tongues, and then Peter used that opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus. Look, that sign, as we mentioned at that point, it was undeniable. The gospel was effective as well, right? As, as we, we learned, around 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church. Here, another undeniable sign has been performed. And, and again, Peter has seen the door opened by God to preach Jesus, and he's taking full advantage of it. We saw that last week, or last time we went through, uh, through Acts, a couple weeks ago. But here in this passage, we see for the first time the persecution of the New Testament church, of New Testament believers. Now, there were likely members of the Sanhedrin there in the crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who heard Peter's message. And if you picked up on this when we went through that sermon, nothing happened to Peter or, or any of the apostles at that point, right? For whatever reason, the, the Sanhedrin, no one, none of the leaders chose to act at that point, chose to act after that message or even after that sign. But now, the second time that this has happened, within a short period it seems, that Peter is preaching the resurrected Christ and following an undeniable sign, the Sanhedrin feels like this, is, this has gone too far. They have to step in at this point. Peter was doing this right outside the temple as well. This wasn't in some hidden corner. It wasn't in some far-reaching place in, in Jerusalem. No, this is right out in the open. This is right by the temple. And so we read in verses 1-4 through four where Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin is annoyed by this, right? They, they see this, they, they hear this, and, and they see the response of the people, and, it, and we're told that they are annoyed. And, and this wasn't just some simple annoyance. This was a, a great annoyance, almost to the point of anger. They, they are angered, really, by, by what is going on and by this message that be, is being preached here by Peter and John. And so we're told that Peter and John are arrested they're held in custody until the next morning. Luke says here that the temple guard came upon them. They, they came upon Peter and John. Now the temple guard was a key figure in the temple. He would have been a member of the high priestly family. He would have only been outranked by the high priest himself. He was over, tasked to be over the temple police. And he was in charge of keeping peace at and around the temple. Daryl Bach states that he, has to, he was tasked to quell any... Messianic expectations which Rome would have disliked, which they thought might have caused some type of uprising or problem with Rome. And that's key here in our passage. 
this came upon, this language here, this term came upon them. It suggests that they, they came upon them aggressively. They confronted them aggressively and asserted their authority and leadership over Peter and John. This was a very visible attempt to assert their power and to stop the message that Peter and John were preaching. Now, later in this passage, in verses 10 and 15, as we read through there, you might have recognized that the healed man, this, this lame, formerly lame man that had been healed, he's said to be standing with Peter and John before the council during their trial. So it's, it's possible that he was there with Peter and John preaching as well. And then also, we know he was with them there while they were preaching, but it's, it's very possible that as he was there with them, that he was arrested as well. He was arrested with Peter and John. Now, why were they arrested? Well, the legal charge, and I, I use that in air quotes because there really was no good legal charge for them, but the legal charge was probably disturbing the peace at the temple. It's likely what they were charged with. But Luke here, he makes clear that the real reason that they were arrested was because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Peter didn't preach something that was popular just because he had an audience, right? He didn't take credit for the healing as we learned last time we went through chapter 3. He didn't draw attention to himself at all, in fact. He preached the gospel of Jesus. For the Sanhedrin, though, that message was one that they would not tolerate. Even if it was directly linked to the healing of a man who had been lame for decades, they would not accept this message. Why wouldn't the religious leaders here celebrate such an obvious act of God? And why would they arrest men for explaining the power behind this healing? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. First, most of the Sanhedrin was composed of the religious sect called Sadducees. We've, we've talked about the Sadducees before, but just as a, a quick reminder of who the Sadducees were, the Sadducees were one of the main religious sect there in Israel at this time, and they held very liberal theological positions. They only accepted the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Most of the remainder of the Old Testament they rejected. They were also very materialistic. And very important to this passage and what is happening here, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So as Peter and John were outside of the temple preaching the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, right outside the temple again, they had a major issue with this, right? I mean, this was, this was something they could not stand and, and listen to or, or have taught. The second reason, the Sadducees, they were very political or very politically involved. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they worked with the Romans in order to gain political favor and political positions and gain power. Now, let's think through this, this setting here in the Sadducees and their thought process as, as they're... Uh, out and they're, they're thinking about you know, the, the, the preaching of Peter and John and, and kind of their thought process. The biggest threat to their power at this time would have been a Jewish insurrection or rebellion against Rome. The, the Sanhedrin was supposed to have flu, influence and control over the people of Israel, right? And if Rome had to come in and put down some type of major rebellion then most likely they were going to remove the men in power who were unable to, to stop it on the, on the ground level, who were able to, unable to stop this rebellion to begin with. But who was the one figure in Judaism who the Sanhedrin knew the Jews would support or follow in rebellion against Rome? It would be the Messiah, 
right? That, the, the, the one that they expected to come as a military leader and take over and, and rid them of Rome. And what has just happened as we come into the book of, Rome, I mean, book of Acts? Well, they've just had Jesus put to death, right? They just had a man put to death that they, they saw all the signs of the Messiah in. They had no answer for Him other than to try to put Him to death to get rid of Him. A man they feared, really. Not because of a godly fear for a Messiah, or for the Messiah like they should have had, but because the people of Israel, they believed in His miracles. And, and they heard the authority in His message. They could not lose power, though. The, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they just couldn't stand the thought of that. So they attempted to take away that biggest threat at that time in Jesus, right? Now a couple of months later, just as we sit here in this passage, just a couple of months later, there are men standing right outside of the temple preaching that He, Jesus, has been raised from the dead. Their attempts at getting rid of Him, they didn't work. And to make matters worse, these men had somehow healed a man who had been crippled for decades and that all the people knew of, and all the people saw there in Jerusalem and were amazed in this, right? So you can see why the, the Sanhedrin, why they were annoyed at this point, why they were even angered at this message. They were probably some, there was probably some fear that went along with this. Despite how the religious leaders felt, though, did you, you pick up there in verse 4 what Luke tells us about this, this event? It didn't matter how the religious leaders felt and what they did in this moment. Luke tells us that many believed who heard the Word. We can't miss this. We can't miss what Luke puts here. We are told that that a number of men now had come to believe about 5,000. Now, some have suggested that this this 5,000 is a full number that represents the full number of people who have been added to the church since the day of Pentecost. So the total number of members in the church perhaps would be around 5,000 in Jerusalem at this time. It's also possible, though, that this number was just a number that came to believe on this day. And it is also possible, as we read here in in the ESV, it says that 5,000 men, it's it's possible that it was just men that Luke references here. That this, This doesn't include the women or children who came to believe through the preaching of this Word. We can see here, though, that the church was growing exponentially. It was growing through public preaching of the Word, right? And then through the community life within the church as as they were meeting every day and souls were being added daily. Look, as we read here through through Acts and we see these, these, the, the, the growth of the church here and we see how God is using the Gospel and the Word, Satan and, and wicked leaders can try all they want, and they do to stop the spread of the Gospel, right? They can try that all they want. They do try all the time, have been for the history of the church. They can try all they want to stop the salvation of sinners and the redemption of the lost, but they never have and they never will be successful in that. Even when persecution from both Jewish leaders and and Rome began to increase in that first and second century, the church exploded, right? It didn't die. It didn't just go away. It exploded. There is power in the Gospel even when it seems hopeless. And and that is on display right here when the church and the message of Jesus is really at its infancy. So, back to our passage. They stayed overnight in jail. And then according to verses 5-12, through they were brought before the Sanhedrin the next day 
to, to be questioned about what had happened to this formerly lame man and by what authority they were preaching and teaching him. Luke tells, uh, first tells us that this, this whole priestly family, high priestly family, was gathered here. He does this, I think, to emphasize the nature of these proceedings. This was not just some informal meeting with some of the leaders there in Jerusalem or the Sanhedrin. Look, this was a formal hearing in front of the entire Sanhedrin. The same people whom Jesus stood before the night of his crucif- or the eve of his crucifixion, who condemned him to death and were instrumental in having him put to death. This was a big deal. Like I was explaining earlier, for, for the Sanhedrin, this was more than just people preaching Jesus resurrected, right? This was that which was enough, but this was also aided by an unexplained miracle in the name of Jesus. This had to make them think, as I was studying, I, I, just, I, I thought back about Jesus and Lazarus, right? As Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and He was walking around known to have been dead and now He's alive, He was a problem for the, re- the leaders of Israel, for the Sanhedrin, right? They couldn't explain that. And they were going to try to put Him to death or they couldn't put Jesus to death, but that was a, a problem they couldn't solve. A miracle so obvious and so incredible that the people who saw it or knew about it were convinced of its authenticity. And, and they believed that to be a work of God. Knowing the impact on the people of Israel and knowing the message of Peter and John here, the Sanhedrin had deemed this a real threat to their power. So Luke describes this full gathering of the Sanhedrin for this hearing. He begins with this high priestly family here with Annas. Now Annas wasn't actually the current high priest. He, it was his son-in-law Caiaphas who we see next, who was the actual reigning high priest at this time. But Annas is referred to as a high priest by, by Luke in Luke 3, 2. So he obviously had some major voice still, and some believe that he was generally acting as high priest behind the scenes instead of Caiaphas as a, a, as a vast general rule. The name John is seen next, and that could be a reference to Jonathan. He was the man, the next high priest who replaced Caiaphas in A.D. 37. We can't be sure about that though. It's possible. Nothing is known of the fourth name, Alexander, other than he's part of this high priestly family. Then we see that the elders were there, which would have been the civil leaders, the chief tribal uh, and family heads, and then last, the scribes. These were those who studied the law or were lawyers, and they were mostly comprised of Pharisees. The point being here, Luke adding all of these, this group, again, the point being here, everyone from the Sanhedrin was here for this hearing. This was the full Sanhedrin court who had assembled to address this miracle and to address this teaching of Peter and John. And they begin the hearing with a simple question. By what power or name do you do this? This question was not just about the healing of the man, though. It was also about the teaching of Peter and John. The Sanhedrin wanted to know by what power they were claiming this miracle, but really this was an indictment of them. Look, Peter and John weren't rabbis, right? They, they were not officially trained. They had no rabbinical authority. They certainly hadn't been given authority by the Sanhedrin to teach the law. And of course, the Sanhedrin believed they were the only ones with the authority to do that, to teach or to give authority to teach. So the question was probably posed along the lines of something like this, by what authority do you... You common men think you are claiming healing and teaching from God. We haven't given you any authority, so explain yourselves, is basically the thrust of of this question. Truthfully, 
they already knew by what authority they claimed, right? Based on, on what Peter and John were preaching. But perhaps the whole Sanhedrin had not heard the message. As they, they stood before this whole full council of the Sanhedrin, they wanted it straight from the source and they wanted it repeated again. I think that they also thought as they brought Peter and John, these uneducated men, as they brought them before the full weight of the Sanhedrin, I think they probably thought that they would crumble in their presence, right? They would, they would crumble and they would deny this healing. They would deny Jesus, really. And then this would all be over with. This is what I, I believe to be their first attempt to really bully John and Peter into just giving up on their message and denying Jesus. As Philip, John Phillips points out, though, everything in their surroundings should have overawed these two peasants. They were a couple of country bumpkins who should have stood there, stood there mumbling apologetically with shuffling feet and downcast eyes. Instead, they looked more like what they really were, ambassadors from the courts of heaven. Amen. So Peter and stood, John, they stood there and they didn't crumble, right? They boldly responded instead. We're told here that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. Now, I want to take a quick aside for a second and address this this statement that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to speak. I think that statements like this in the New Testament have caused some to be confused today a little bit as to what that means. So I want to clarify just for a moment what Luke means here. Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment before these leaders, it was a fulfillment of Jesus' promise back in Luke 21, verses 12-15. through In that passage, we read this, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your mind not to meditate before how to answer, for I will give you mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That, that promise there was given directly to the apostles. It was not applicable to us today. It is not the, the filling of the Holy Spirit which takes place at salvation and which all believers have access to today. I don't mean to say that the Holy Spirit is not with us today, obviously, that we're not guided by His indwelling presence, nor that... If we are persecuted, that He will not give us clear minds or bring to our remembrance the already revealed Word of God, which hopefully we have studied and have established in our hearts and our minds. But this was a specific and special promise given to the apostles for what would come upon them after Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit is giving them, in this moment, boldness to speak, and He's given them words and revelation. This sermon was dropped in Peter's head, so to speak, by the filling of the Holy Spirit in this moment. So in response here, as as the Holy Spirit fills Peter, Peter begins by addressing them respectfully, right? He begins respectfully, which we should all learn from. But he asks them, he basically asks them, "Are, are, are we being questioned or charged for doing a good deed by healing this man? This type of good deed would generally be celebrated, and Peter knows this. So he's pointing that out. And he goes on then to clearly state the power behind this healing. If we are being charged for this good deed, then let me be clear. It is Jesus of Nazareth that has healed this man. Peter is clear about the name and the power behind this healing, right? 
he also boldly gives proper blame for his death here. Look, while all of Israel bore the guilt and responsibility for the crucifixion of their Messiah, I think it's fair to say that this group, this, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, they were responsible more than other, every other Israelite in a sense. They, they led the charge. They, it was their responsibility to see and recognize the Messiah and direct the people of Israel to the Messiah, right? But instead they turned them away. And Peter's not saying this to poke at them, or he's not saying this because he's angry at them. No, on the contrary, he's giving them the truth of the gospel here. Yes, you crucified him, but he goes on to say, but God raised him from the dead. And it is through the, this power, it is through his power, which this man is healed. Peter makes note that he wasn't just going to proclaim this to them either, that this is going to be proclaimed to all of Israel. Peter goes on to explain Scripture to them. He says, this was prophesied. This was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. He quotes from Psalm 118.22 here. He talks about the, the cornerstone. And, and this is common language in the Old Testament. Peter tells them, that, he says, you as the builders, he refers to them as, as the builders, you have rejected the stone. But the stone that they had rejected is the exact stone that God has made the cornerstone. The cornerstone was essential for a building, right? A building could not stand without that cornerstone. Quoting Bach again, the ironic image in this setting is of a temple being built as a people of God, although the key ingredient for God's presence has been rejected. If Jesus healed this man, then this means that He's alive, right? I mean, dead men don't heal other men, right? It's impossible. So if the power behind the healing of this man was Jesus, He's alive and He's vindicated by God having been raised from the dead despite their attempts to silence Him, and they were directly culpable for His death. That's exactly what Peter's telling them. So Peter, with clarity and boldness, tells them that there is no other name then, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. Peter says here, we. So he's including the Sanhedrin. And he's basically appealing to them directly to repent and turn to Jesus. Right? Say, we, all of us, must be saved by the name of Jesus and no other name. Because the phrase here, there is no other name, appears in the Greek before the subject of the sentence salvation, it makes this point emphatic. There is no other name, no one else at all other than Jesus who can save. We'll come back to that. that that's such an important point. It's such an important thing for us to hold to. Having held a hearing with Peter and John, the accused then, they had them leave the room, which was common practice after a hearing. The Sanhedrin would take their time to fully debate or discuss the charges of the accused without interference. And so in, in verses 13-18, through 18, we're giving the inner workings of how the, the Sanhedrin has assessed this particular situation. Now, some have actually questioned whether Luke was just making this up or not. You know, they questioned how in the world could he have, how could he have known what they, they said in this closed-door meeting. They don't think there's any way, right, in this secret meeting. Peter and John were gone, and Luke certainly wasn't there at this point. But I'll offer several possibilities. First, 
Paul could have been there, right? I mean, Paul was a high-ranking member. He was well-respected among the Sanhedrin. He could have been there. And then he could have relayed the, the inner workings of this meeting to Luke and what went on. Or it could have been Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, the, the rabbi who taught Paul who was there. He could have been there and then relayed what happened to Paul as well, even if Paul wasn't there. It's also possible that Nicodemus, who was a part of the Sanhedrin and who history tells us was a true convert, or became a true convert later in his life, he could have given this account to Luke. There are many plausible explanations other than the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which also is a very possible explanation. But no matter the way, there's no reason at all to question the accuracy of what we have here, right? We know God has given us His true Word and this is accurate. And what was said in this, this hearing, what we get is what, what took place. It is clear from the meeting that the Sanhedrin, they had no idea how to handle this situation. Their initial attempt to scare or bully Peter and John here hadn't worked, right? They, Peter and John had stood their ground and they proclaimed Christ with boldness. And the Sanhedrin, we're told, were astonished by the response here of Peter and John. They, they were clearly uneducated, meaning that they had not been trained in the law, been authorized by a rabbi, and, and they were also common, meaning that they had not received much, much common educational training. The point being, people like Peter and John, they weren't supposed to speak with such clarity and boldness, especially concerning theology or religious matters. As as a quick aside, I would say that this astonishment we see here by the Sanhedrin as they, they heard Peter and John preach or teach or talk to them, answer them, it should kind of clue us in on how much Jesus was the face and the voice of the group who followed Him when He was alive. The Sanhedrin, they recognized Peter and John here as two who followed Jesus while He was alive. We're told that. But apparently, they had never heard Him speak. Uh, If you look back at the life of Jesus and you see the Gospels, you see the accounts of the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus is the one who was speaking to the crowds or speaking to the religious leaders, and therefore, He was the one subject to the ridicule and the hate. He protected them, really, in a sense. That's one reason why Jesus spent so much time on the eve of His crucifixion warning them of the persecution that they would now face after His death. But He also comforted them, right? Telling them that the Holy Spirit would come and be with them. Well, here we see Peter and John facing this initial persecution that Jesus promised would come without His presence being there. But we also see that comfort of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit that has come to give them boldness and give them clarity and answers. But here's the problem facing the Sanhedrin at the moment. The undeniable healed man standing in front of them was a problem they couldn't solve. They they wanted to just do away with these men, with anyone proclaiming Jesus, because Jesus had been the biggest threat to their power, right? And they thought that by cutting off the head of the snake, they would kill the snake. But not only were the followers still boldly preaching Jesus, They were preaching that the snake had been resurrected from the dead, right? They were preaching that Jesus was still alive. Even more problematic was that this message was verified by the fact that they had healed a man notoriously lame for 40 years in the name of Jesus. So they couldn't get past the fact that so many had seen this miracle and heard the message of Peter and John. They couldn't. That's that's the problem. They just could not get past this. This begs the question then, why would they want to deny this? Why would these men want to deny this incredible act and just obvious work of God in front of them? 
It is incredible as we look at this. And of course, we can go back to the life of Jesus as well, but it is incredible how the depravity of man, how the, a depraved heart can twist a mind and a heart of a person. Yet there is, this is where the religious leaders were, right? They were twisted. They had no desire to hear the message and power of Jesus. They had already spearheaded the denial, uh, uh, their national denial of Messiah Jesus and having the people cry for His crucifixion, having Him put to death. Now, as the leaders of Israel hear, their verdict would effectively be a verdict on behalf of the nation again. So they are preparing to spearhead a second national denial of the Messiah, which would prove to be fatal. They could not have this message of Jesus spread, though, if they were to keep their power. So they attempted this second time to bully these men, and they demanded that they stop speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. This is the plan they come up with. We'll just call them back in here, and we'll just demand that they don't preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. What they were about to do here was not some suggestion. It wasn't just, would you please not do this again? Would you just go out and just don't talk about Jesus again, please? This was not some soft term for a warning in the Greek here. This was a flat-out command which carried the full weight of the Sanhedrin court behind it. To refuse such a command, it could have had major repercussions for anyone who refused it. Having made their decision on how they will handle this situation, then they call Peter and John back out or back in and issue the command to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. So in verses 19-22, through 22, Peter and John respond to the Sanhedrin's demand to stop preaching in the resurrected Jesus. Again, let me impress upon you the, the nature of this hearing and, and what, is, what John and Peter uh, would have been standing in front of. This is equivalent to standing before the Supreme Court of the United States. Except the Supreme Court here can't actually do much to you outside of holding you in contempt if you were to refuse in their presence to do something they've said. They generally just they rule on a law and then the law is passed down to states and the states, they are the ones that enforce that and, and ultimately their rulings have an effect, major effect on us. But I mean, as you stand in front of the Supreme Court, there's not a whole lot that they can effectively do to you in that moment unless you are held in contempt for acting out or doing something they've told you not to do in their presence. The Sanhedrin though, they could arrest for failure to obey They could excommunicate them from the synagogue. Essentially, doing that in the Jews' mind would take them out of the the eternity, right? I mean, take them out of the presence of God that you had to be able to have access to the temple to properly follow the law, which they felt was essential to being in in heaven and being with God. It, It was also certainly possible for them to put someone to death as they did Jesus just recently. Now, Peter has preached boldly so far, right? But this is the first time that he's been face-to-face with a Sanhedrin since the night of Jesus' trial when he denied Jesus. And, and I really think that this, the, these verses and, and Peter and John's response here, this is the crux of the passage. I, I would argue that this is the crux of Peter's ministry and his claim as a true believer and follower of Christ. Peter had the opportunity to deny again, right? He had the opportunity here to submit to the the will of the Sanhedrin and give in to their power and fear what they could do to him. But Peter answers them, and he answers them in a way that there is just no better answer that could have been given. Peter tells the Sanhedrin, basically, you judge how you need to, but we must answer to God and obey Him. And so we will. 
their answer should have hit home to the Sanhedrin. I mean, a lot of things leading up to this point should have hit home with him, them. And so it's not surprising that this answer doesn't either. But Peter says they will be judged by God as to whether it was proper to listen to God or to listen to the Sanhedrin court. That's what he's telling them. We're going to be judged as to whether it's proper to listen to you or to God. Don't miss that Peter and John here are certainly saying, they're telling the Sanhedrin that what the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, what they are telling them to do was opposed to what God had told them to do. So they were opposed to God is what Peter and John were telling them. Look, the Sanhedrin were supposed to represent God to the people, right? They should have been the last group of Jews opposing God and His Word, but here they are, again, directly denying and opposing God. The Sanhedrin were just following in the footsteps of their ancestors, though, who, who thought that their external works and, and look would be more important than obedience to God and His Word. Back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, after, after Saul had failed to obey the Word of God and devote the entire nation of Amalek to destruction, not sparing man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, or donkey, Samuel told Saul this. He said, "...to obey is better than sacrifice." Look, God doesn't care how we dress up our outside if our inside hates His Word and rejects its authority. The Sanhedrin could put on all the religious show that they wanted. As to the law, they could have been blameless as Paul said of himself prior to his conversion. But by failing to follow the words of Jesus, their piety was worthless. It was a stench, in fact, in the nose of God instead of a pleasing aroma. So Peter and John, they just leave it for the Sanhedrin to judge what they think is right. Peter understands that they themselves cannot change the minds of the Sanhedrin to the Gospel, but he tells them they could not submit to their authority. They could only submit to the authority of God. And they could either admit that this is God's message, or they could deny that this is God's message and therefore deny God. I want you to see this. As Peter and John stood before the, the court here, they were commissioned not too long ago by Jesus Himself to be witnesses of His resurrection, right? Jesus had personally commissioned them to do this. They had seen Jesus alive. And so there is nothing that the Sanhedrin could threaten or demand which could change that fact. Since they had seen Jesus alive, they had also spoken to Him and therefore they had received instructions to him or from him as the resurrected messiah and so as peter and john stood before the court with all the weight and authority of the sanhedrin who do you think held more weight in their minds was it the sanhedrin or was it god himself peter shows it was god himself right so after peter's response the sanhedrin sees their second attempt to bully peter and john had failed Therefore, they turn to their third attempt and they threaten them one last time. They issue more threats. So they, they, they hoped to begin with that their pure presence, right? The weight of the presence of the Sanhedrin would make them cower. And then they hoped that a direct command to stop preaching Jesus would then make them cower from their message. Now, finally, they just threaten them with everything they've got. They, they, we don't know the exact nature of the threats, but it's likely that everything they could threaten them with, they threw at them, right? They knew... They could only do this though. They could only threaten them because they knew at that moment concerning this issue, the general public had seen this miracle of God. They knew it to be a miracle that, that could not be denied. 
And the people were praising God because of it. The Sanhedrin's power was somewhat limited by the crowd then, right? If they knew they could have persuaded or deceived them, then they would have the crowd. If they could have bullied one or two people at a time, then they would have. But a full crowd who had a strong opinion as to this issue, they would not go away, and so they would not go against them. So, they released them under the guise of all kinds of threats. So what do we see here then for us as we read through this passage and as we try to apply it to today? Well, I think we can begin with the fact that God's Word, it will not be stopped despite the efforts of Satan and depraved man. It, it will either save or condemn. I, I think sometimes we shy away from spreading the Gospel because we don't have faith in its power. I'm just being honest. Maybe we've had several occasions where we've tried to share it ourselves and, and nothing seemed to happen. And so maybe we begin to, to doubt the power. Well, is this really, is anything happening? Is, is this changing? Are our lives being changed? You know, maybe the gospel in our southern Bible belt has been so common in the sense that we've all been part of church. We've all gone to church. And so we kind of think everybody maybe knows the gospel. Everybody already understands or they know of Jesus. And so what can we do by spreading the gospel? What, can, what do we need to do? Is there really any power in that? Yes, there is. This is a prime example. Just because we live in the, the Bible belt, as I, I just said, it was commonly referred to the, as the Bible Belt, doesn't mean that people don't need saving. It doesn't mean that people don't need the Gospel. If you can't look around and see that every day in your lives, then you're just blind on purpose. And if you preach the Gospel, as we've been instructed to, if you go and tell people of the resurrected Christ, it will not go out void. It will return in one way or another. It will either return in saving power or return in condemning power. I think we can also see that here persecution is not a sign of failure. In the midst of persecution from the Roman Empire during the 2nd century, an early church father by the name of Tortillian, he coined this phrase, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning, that when persecution is great is when the church really grows. Now, I don't want persecution per se. I think I could say that for everybody in this church, right? Everybody that's sitting here this morning. We shouldn't seek after persecution. But we shouldn't shy away from it either. And as we sit here today and we see the world in its state today, even around us here in the community here in Tuscaloosa, we see the direction that things seem to be going. And I say this not knowing the future or the will of God. And we could have the greatest revival in the United States or in this area that has ever come, and I pray that happens. But it's also easy to see where persecution could soon be around the corner for all of us, and we could be standing in front of a court with the same decision. Don't think if that comes that persecution then means failure. And don't shy away from it. Will you preach the name of Jesus? Or will you accept the numerous gods and idols that this world offers or will you fail to proclaim Christ alone in fear of what people might think or do? Look, we've got that choice now, right? I mean, there are so many people who preach there's plenty of ways to Jesus. There's plenty of or excuse me, there's plenty of ways to God. It's not just the name of, of Jesus. It's not just 
through Christianity. I mean, there's God manifests Himself in all kinds of different ways, whether it's Allah or whether it's uh, uh, I'm failing to Buddha or you know anyone, any other false god it, that is supposed to be accepted. We're supposed to accept any religious sect out there, right? As anybody's way to God, and that's how God is manifesting Himself. But what we see in this passage should leave no doubt in our minds. There is no other name, no way, no other way in which we can be saved or anyone else can be saved other than the name of Jesus. We have to stand on that truth. We have to preach that truth. And we cannot accept any other variation of that. Peter didn't. John didn't. Why should we? Look, we won't always be perfect or answer properly. Peter certainly didn't in his life. Not even after this. He still, we have examples of, of Peter failing to act appropriately at, at a time. But we do know, we can see here, that Peter grew, right? He matured. He became a, a major part of, of that early church, right? And, and we can take comfort from that. And we should learn from Peter as well that we might all, not always answer perfectly or have the perfect thing to say. and We might fail at times, but our life should consistently point back to Jesus. Our answer should, should, should consistently point back to He is our Lord, right? And we should just trust as we read God's Word and we grow in God's Word that we will mature as well and we will be able to give answers in which we need to give in times when we may be facing persecution as well. Look, we may not have seen Jesus in the way that Peter and John did. And, and I think sometimes we can look at that and we can say, yeah, they, they could stand in front of the Sanhedrin court and they could be bold because they had seen Jesus with their eyes. They had seen Him and talked to Him and touched Him. and they, they, there's, you know, We just haven't seen that. We're supposed to just go on their word. But haven't we seen the proof of Christ in our lives? If we claim to be believers, if we claim to have been changed by Jesus and we've got new hearts, can't, don't we stand here with the proof of that? We don't have to see Jesus in person to know that He is alive and He has changed our lives. And so we should be just as Peter and John and we should reply, we can't but speak what we have seen and what we know. We cannot not speak it, Right? Tell others of the change, of the proof of the change. Will you obey God or man? Again, it might be easy to look back at Peter and John who saw Jesus in person and say, yeah, they could, but it's harder for us. But when a man is truly convinced of God's truth, that Jesus is Savior, the only Savior, and His Word is final and sufficient, then they will obey His commands. I pray that we have that stance today. Stand with me.